The Lord be with you. Would you pray with me? Oh God, our Father, today is as confusing as yesterday. And yesterday was as confusing as two months ago. We wait for the return of these little freedoms when it will be safe again to be face to face with each other without masks. We wait to hear reports that the danger has passed and everything goes back to how it was before. Only we don't want everything to go back to how it was. We pray that one day the world we enter will vibrate with more love than hate, more kindness than violence, more giving than taking. Since you have called us to yourself and adopted us as your children, teach us how we can be agents for change, to make our nation a better, healthier place for everyone. Give us each our to-do list according to our inherent ability and strength. Hand us our shovel, our bandages, our keyboard, and teach us how to use these tools to extend the influence of love and multiply peace. Again, we put our trust in you. Forgive us that at times we falter or forget. You are our refuge, our defense, our security. When our souls are overwhelmed by the enormity of human foolishness and sin, we return to you and are soothed by your presence. Reflect through our lives this week the beauty and goodness of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, okay, we go back to Hebrews chapter 7 this morning, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Again, the writer of Hebrews is comparing Jesus and the order of his priesthood to the priestly order that was outlined in the Old Testament scriptures. And he is showing us that Jesus serves us better than they ever did. <clears throat> we all know someone, or perhaps we've been that someone, who powers through relationships dating one person after another looking for that right one. Not long after I moved to Dana Point, I met a young man who, uh, who went through relationships just one after another. And it's, it struck me, uh, because he's always uh, coming over to our apartment and saying, oh, you know, I've met so-and-so, I've fallen in love. It struck me that he's very much like the way St. Augustine described himself uh, before he was a saint. He said, I searched about for something to love, in love with loving. I think it's possible to, to have a love addiction where you, you just love the chemistry of falling in love and you keep going for that, that fix. I heard a psychiatrist say one time, that falling in love is a powerful drug. Well, it's important for us to know the difference between 
and infatuation and being in love. With infatuation, I think we're enchanted by the idea of the person. And we're, we're more in, infatuated with our fantasy of, that, of who that person is than who the person actually is in real life. It may be someone we admire, but do not necessarily know them for who they really are. Years ago, I interviewed a Christian musician, uh, and during our interview, she talked about how she had been involved in this religion and that religion, going from one religion uh, to another, looking for something, looking for the truth. And I asked her, well, how do you know that Christianity is not just one more religion that you're going to leave behind in your search for truth? And her response was beautiful. She said, because when I found what I was looking for, I stopped looking. How, how, what a wonderful statement to be able to make and, uh, and about our Christian faith. When you know what you're looking for and you know the person that you love, then you've found the right one. You can stop looking. The writer of Hebrews has introduced us to this obscure figure of Melchizedek from the Old Testament in order to show us Jesus' credentials, uh, that he belongs to priestly order above every other priestly order. And in every way, Jesus outshines every other servant of God, be it a priest, a prophet, a psalmist, a king, a judge. Jesus is is better than all. We've already seen he's better than the angels. He's uh, greater than Moses, and so on. The writer tells us, uh, basically, you may be infatuated with your priest, your pastor, your preacher, but Jesus is the right one to fall in love with. And I, I think that's, I think that's a good way of thinking about the human person who is a spiritual leader, and the divine human person, who is the ultimate spiritual leader. We're infatuated with those who have helped us to grow in Christ, but really in love with Jesus himself. The writer has been creating these contrasts, not creating, but, but noting and observing these contrasts between Jesus and the Levitical priests. And... Uh, and he's continuing to do this. We have more contrast today. We'll have more contrast in chapter 8. But he wants us to know what Jesus is able to do for us. And what he can do for us, they could not do. In fact, they were never meant to do for us all that Jesus does. Um, what they were meant to do, they did. And when they were on, they did well. And God was pleased. Uh, and, and we're given this information that their sacrifices were pleasing to him. But there are two contrasts here in the verses I, that I read, verses 23 and 24. Um, there are the many priests contrasted to the one Jesus. And the priest of the, the pardon me, the service of the many was temporary. One priest followed another. And they had to have priest after priest because each one eventually died. The high priest eventually would go and 
can be replaced. Whereas Jesus is forever. He is permanent, we're told. The word, the Greek word translated permanently was used in legal documents. William Barclay said that it means non-transferable. Uh, Luke Johnson offers several meanings, and one of them is there's no going beyond. That, that uh, boundary is set, or a condition is set, and there's no going beyond that. And because he continues forever, there will be no other priest after Jesus. There will be no other order of priest greater than that to which Jesus belongs. And so this is the con contrast he's developing here. Parish priests and church pastors eventually move on, die, or retire. And it can be really hard for people to take, especially those who love their leaders and, and are, are supported by their leaders and offer, me, also offer their support. But it's not necessarily a bad thing to lose your favorite priest or pastor. Let me explain why. A pastor typically, hopefully, uh, if, if a true leader has a vision for the church and becomes, that vision becomes the church's mission. And so a generation of believers who who sit underneath that pastor um, lives that mission, fulfills that mission, or, or works at it. When that pastor is gone, the question uh, that's asked frequently is, who will take over that church's vision now that our pastor is gone? And I. I've come to believe that's the wrong question to ask. With time, culture changes. And as culture changes, the needs of people and the interests of people within that culture also change. And that calls for a new vision that fits the culture at that time. Besides that, Besides the, the refreshment of having a new vision, the leader with the vision is the only one who knows it inside and out. For example, uh, let's say a question comes up. Someone comes to the visionary and says, our church needs a choir. Why don't we have a choir? And the visionary asks, well, why do you ask that question? And the person says, all of the other churches in the area have choirs. We need a choir. And the pastor said, that's exactly why we don't need a choir. All the other churches in the area are already doing that, providing that. And if we need to be like all the other churches, then let's just close our doors and go join one of those other churches. You see, the visionary knows why we don't have a choir. That there's all kinds of questions like that that come up that only the visionary knows. So when that person goes, 
the essence of the vision goes. And you can, you can still have the same vision statement, but it doesn't have the life that it had by the person you know, who first saw that vision and articulated it. So a church can continue doing the same things that they did when the visionary was there, but no one remembers why. Why do we do it like this? Um, and it may be something that the visionary had suggested. It may have been his or her own creativity. They said, well, this is why we baptize like this. This is why we do the blessings at the dedication of a child like this. Um, but no one remembers all of the reason, all the biblical thinking, all the theological thinking that went behind it, all the personal investment behind that. So it loses something of a generation of its spiritual quality because people are doing things they don't know the fullness of the meaning of what they're doing. And again, questions come up for which no one has the right answer. Um, they are now reinterpreting the vision according to their understanding, but they don't have its fullness. So churches need a new vision from time to time. People need to grow. And typically, a, a vision is one-dimensional. I mean, it has many aspects, but there, there's one major concern, like missions. Let's send missionaries into the world. Let's support mission organizations. Or evangelism. Let's support evangelism. Or let's, let's become ardent stu students of the Word of God. Let's have really in-depth Bible studies every time we get together. Or prayer. Let, let's be a house of prayer for all nations. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that a vision can be one-dimensional. And so if we've been focusing on one dimension for a time, it doesn't hurt to have our horizon broaden. And individuals need this, and churches need this. We, we need to have breadth to our vision. With Jesus Christ, though, we already have everything. There's nothing one-dimensional about Jesus. There never needs to be a changing of the guard. He is a priest forever. So on the one hand, you have this long succession of priests, one dying and another feeling his shoes. That doesn't really matter that much because they all perform the same services, though they can do it with integrity or without integrity. And when it's without integrity, the worship of Israel was always diminished, sometimes ruined completely. But, but with Jesus, there's no succession. There's just Jesus. He never leaves, and no one ever replaces him. Consequently, uh, verse 25, consequently, the writer says, and what he's saying is, here's the conclusion we can draw, that he is able to save to the uttermost. Uh, the word save, remember this, it refers to the whole person now and for eternity. So salvation has a past tense. He saved me from the life I used to live. It has a present tense. He's saving me by repairing my life, building my life, uh, filling in what's missing, correcting what's wrong. And salvation is this process that's ongoing. And he will save me 
with the resurrection of my body into eternity with him. And Jesus is able, because he's, he's permanent, because he's forever, he's able to save us to the uttermost. Uttermost, isn't that a great word? Uh, and it's, it's interesting to me that even modern translations will still use it. But I think it's, it's partly its vagueness that has the appeal because the Greek word it translates can mean totally or completely. Jesus saves us totally. Or it can have to do with time. To the end of time. You know, forever, always. And, and I don't think we miss the point if we take it both ways. Jesus works with us to the end of time saving us completely. Okay. Maybe you are not where you want to be in your spiritual development today. Can you say that you're not in the same place you were a year ago? That's very important. And if you can't say that, well then, meet with someone you respect in the faith, a spiritual director, a pastor, someone, uh, a counselor, and seek their help in developing your spiritual life. Um, on the other hand, I think all of us can be disappointed in our spiritual development in some ways, and that reveals areas of growth, of needed growth. Who benefits from this ministry of Jesus, his saving to the uttermost? Those who draw near to God through him. Timothy Johnson says, God's gift to humans comes through Jesus, and likewise, their access to God passes through him. Jesus is that mediator between God and us. He connects us, and all God's wonderful gifts come through Jesus, and all of our prayers go through Jesus. The, the Latin word for priest is pontifex, and that means bridge builder. It was the role of the priest to be a mediator, to, to build this bridge so that we become the friends of God, no longer enemies. And the bridge builder uh, works out a peaceful relationship between both parties. Jesus makes certain that God's door is always open to you. Always open to you. So you can draw near. And he's always doing this. He's always making sure that he is, is forever making intercession for us. You know, draw near is, is the writer's favorite word to talk about the Christian experience. This is, is what it is. And Jesus enables us to draw near through his ongoing intercession. Um, wow, how, how do I explain intercession? It's, it, 
can and in scripture, especially the New Testament, most often means someone is talking to someone on behalf of someone else. So the intercessor stands, let's say, between ourselves and God and intercedes for us, brings a petition to God on our behalf. Perhaps Jesus is asking God for something for you today that you never even considered asking. It did not occur to you that this was a need. And Jesus today is interceding for you that that need would be met. And of course he intercedes for the needs that we know we have. But uh, listen to Paul in the book of Romans. He says, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit of God intercedes for us. I know exactly what Paul means when he says we don't know how to pray as we ought. I'm sure there's something I should be praying for regarding this person, but I don't know what it is. Should I pray, heal this person, Lord? Or should I pray, Lord, do a good work in this person through their illness? I don't know. But the Spirit of God knows. And Paul will say that the that the Spirit of God knows the mind of God. So he always prays the right prayer. He always prays according to the will of God. And what he takes is our inarticulate groans and makes a prayer out of them to present to God. In that same chapter of Romans, Romans 8, Paul also says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So the Spirit of God is interceding for us, and Jesus is interceding for us. The Spirit of God intercedes in our own hearts. His work of intercession goes on there to form the right prayers. Jesus intercedes at the right hand of the Father. Now, how can you have uh, an ineffective prayer life if you have the Spirit of God and the Son of God as intercessors every time you turn your face towards heaven and speak God's name? So, whether it's uh, a matter of God being for us, uh, or not being able to find our way around in prayer, the believer may know that he or she is not left in helpless isolation. There is an intercessor for him and her which reaches to the very top. That's from Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament Greek. Um, and I think it's beautiful. The, the intercessors that we have on our behalf, go to the very top. Um, how can we lose? Okay, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted 
above the heavens. Jesus meets our need for a priest perfectly. I'm going to mention something that we're all aware of, but I'm not going to overemphasize it because there's no need for that. The Roman Catholic Church is still settling cases in court, paying out millions of dollars for men who, when boys, were molested by priests. Some pastors and priests offend in serious ways. Offend God, offend others, and offend their calling by their deeds. If you are able to know all that could be known of any person, your best friend, parents, siblings, strangers you're impressed with, if you were to know everything about that person, you would be disappointed. That's nothing more than our human weakness. We disappoint ourselves sometimes, and we would disappoint others if they knew all there is to know about us. Although he was also human, Jesus Christ does not disappoint. There's no compromise in him. There's nothing in him we could ever find that would, that would have us think less of him. It is fitting, the writer says, that we should have a priest like Jesus. Again, Timothy Johnson says that fitting does not mean is, is what we have deserved, but rather what we have truly needed. Jesus fits not what we deserve. We don't deserve someone so holy, so innocent, so unstained, but it's what we need. We need someone we can count on with whom there's no compromise, who, who doesn't cheat, who doesn't take bribes, who doesn't lie to us. There's nothing false there. So we need this, this priest who is holy. Jesus is, by nature, what God is, holy. We are not by nature. We have to be made holy. And, and Jesus, because he is holy, can handle all the operations that require holiness, which in worship and, and in prayer, well, we're going to find out later on in Hebrews that without holiness, it's impossible um, to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, but also without holiness, no one will see God. That's it. Better go, Smith. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So Jesus can handle the holiness issue for us and work it into our lives. He's innocent. Now, this may be a cross way of putting it, but no one's ever going to dig up any dirt on Jesus. And believe me, people have tried. They tried in his, in his own time, uh, accusing him of being in league with demons. <laughs> He's unstained. Nothing of our wickedness ever rubbed off on him. 
Isn't that wonderful? Uh, he's separated from sinners. That does not mean he's separated by space or that he's, he's separated by goodwill or he won't touch sinners. Um, that, that he, he did not stay clear of sinners. If we know anything about Jesus, especially in Luke's gospel, he, he ate and welcomed, he ate with sinners and welcomed them and was criticized harshly for doing so. He's not separate from sinners in that way, but he did not participate in any of their sinfulness. He did not share that human trait with us, the trait of sinfulness. We've already seen. He was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. He is exalted above the heavens. Isn't this where the book of Hebrews started? That after making purification for our sins, he took his place at the right hand of his majesty on high. His, his exaltation is for our benefit. He is where he can do the most good for us. Verses 27 and 28. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, points a son who has been made perfect forever. The writer uh, has more contrast to point out. And first, uh, there, there are two here. First, Jesus does not have to have to offer sacrifices daily. He offered a once-for-all sacrifice. And, and there's a twist here that the writer is going to explore further, so we, we won't take too much time with it now. But Jesus is both the priest who offers the sacrifice, and he is the sacrifice that's offered. So we not only have a better priest, we have a better sacrifice. The second contrast in verse 27 is he does not have to make any sacrifice for his own sin. So he offers a once-for-all sacrifice that we can appeal to all the time, and his sacrifice is not for his own sin. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest's first sacrifice was for his own sin so that he would be sacred enough to go about his duties for the rest of the nation. The next contrast then is in verse 28, where the high priest were men appointed in their weakness. Their appointment was by the law, the law of Moses. The son does not have any weakness. He is perfect. He is made perfect forever. So that's the first contrast to verse 28 is men are weak, but the Son of God is not. He's perfect forever. And they were appointed by the law. He wasn't appointed by the law. He was appointed by the word of the oath. And we've seen that before in verse 20, the importance of God swearing this oath. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this oath 
the writer emphasizes this, this oath came later than the law. Now, let's just go back. God swore an oath to Abraham that he would be blessed, that he'd have many descendants, and that through Abraham and his descendants, God would bless the world. This oath was prior to the law. That tells us that it is foundational. It's, it's an oath on which God develops his work in Israel throughout the ages. The oath that was made to the Messiah came after the law. It's in the Psalm, Psalm 110, verse 4. And that indicates that there's a change in the law. And we've seen that that change in the law is because it wasn't working. It, and it, it did not work because it wasn't meant to change people, to transform lives. It was only meant to show people what righteousness was, but it could not make people righteous. So God brought along a priest who could make people righteous, not just give them a covering of righteousness, but work righteousness on the inside. And oh boy, we're going to get to that in chapter 8, the, the second part of chapter 8. And it's beautiful the way, the way God maneuvers this on our behalf. Look again. The Son has been made perfect forever. Jesus Christ does all that is necessary on our behalf, and he does it perfectly. All right, I, I began this talk with a couple of remarks regarding love. Gerald May, one of my favorite uh, authors when it comes to uh, spirituality, and especially how it... Um, connects with psychology, Gerald May, wrote, Falling in love often feels choiceless. It seems to break through our defenses. Being in love, however, is something we say yes to. It is a willing yielding into love's presence. Sometimes falling in love can take us by surprise. But to be in love, we have to say yes to it. We have to, we have to yield to it. Sometimes it's wiser not to yield to those, those feelings and impressions, even though um, they may do so much good for us in terms of how we feel, how we feel about ourselves, about life, and all the beauty we see in the world. And, Oh, the white line going down the middle of the street is so beautiful when you're in love. It's perfect, of course. Being in love generates a wonderful energy. It's a powerful drug. But again, everything, that, everything good that comes from being in love comes from being in love with the right person. St. Augustine, in his Confessions, confesses to God, Too late did I love thee, O fairness, 
so ancient and yet so new. Too late did I love thee. For behold, thou wert within, and I without. And there did I seek thee. I, unlovely, rushed heedlessly among the things of beauty thou madest. Thou wert with me, but I was not with thee. He was falling in love with loving all the wrong people, all the wrong things. Too late did I love thee. Um, I came too late to this, this falling in love with you, O God. Had he fallen in love with God sooner, he would have spared himself a lot of nonsense and a lot of heartache. God tells us, in effect, I've removed every obstacle between us from my side so that you could come to me. Now remove the obstacles that are on your side. And when I think of that, I think about the thoughts that come up in my own mind when I begin to pray, my thoughts of unworthiness, my thoughts of, am I really doing any good? Am I really making contact with God? All these things are obstacles to, to our access to God. But look, if God's cleared everything from his side, and the door's wide open, and, and Jesus' intercession is keeping it open, then we can draw near. The next time you go outside, look up at the sky and notice that there's nothing between you and the sky. That the sky is, is right here and you, you see into its depths. And when you're noticing that there's nothing between you and the sky, realize the same is true with you and God. There's nothing that stands between you and God. And you can feel that same sense of closeness. Even though we can't see into the depths of God any more than we can see into the depths of space, still, we have that ability to see what's in front of us. And God is right now in front of us. And even this space between you and I, God fills it. He's that close. You have already the perfect priest, the perfect minister, the perfect pastor, the perfect counselor, the perfect spiritual guide, the, the perfect intercessor. You have Jesus. Jesus is all of this and infinitely more. Say yes to falling in love with Jesus. May the Lord God bless our week ahead. Fill us with his spirit. Prepare us to go to this week with a joyful heart and praise on our lips and enough love for every person we encounter, read about, hear of, and see. The Lord bring the blessing of healing into all of our lives 
and all for those whom we pray, and for all situations that we pray for. May the Lord bless us and keep away all evil and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.